So it is strategically important that we are here right now, uh, especially right now when you think about the culture and when you think about the challenges that we face as, uh, as a messianic congregation, as a messianic Jewish congregation, when you think about what's going on in the Jewish community worldwide, and then just as believers in Yeshua, as part of the worldwide body of Messiah, when you think about what's happening in the culture, never have we been faced in our lifetime, certainly as believers, with this double-barrel anti-Jewish sentiment and anti-God, anti-Bible sentiment in here, where, you know, where we live. And so uh, this is a strategic time uh, to move forward. Uh, and, and we are in a very appropriate place uh, in our study of the book of Daniel uh, for this. We are in the seventh chapter. I cannot think of a better place to be than the seventh chapter of Daniel when you think about the world in which we live. So that is certainly uh, very providential. Now, uh, next year, you know, what a beautiful, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but there's a beautiful display, MSI display. I love the colors, you know, of this year's, uh, this coming year's brochure and all that and what's up there. But even better than the colors is the content. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, we are, we like the sizzle, but we like the steak better than the sizzle, if you know what I mean. Uh, and, um, and so we are offering a new slate of classes. And since I'm preaching through Daniel, uh, it just seems real appropriate and uh, good for us to teach through Daniel. So the, the, the good thing about that is I don't feel the, the heavy responsibility that in a one message to get through every nuance of the seventh chapter of Daniel, right? I, I, but you know me, I probably by the, by the time 10 minutes go by, I'm going to feel that responsibility. But... Um, uh, when we have our class, we will be looking uh, much at the background of a passage like this and, and other aspects. But it's very important that we understand what's going on in this passage. First of all, this is probably the most uh, famous part of the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter. I know that, you know, uh, there's a great messianic prophecy in the ninth chapter, the 70 weeks of Daniel. We'll get to that. But this chapter, the seventh chapter, is very well known, and much, much has been written on it. One reason is because it is so prevalent in the New Covenant, uh, in the words of Yeshua and in the book of Revelation, uh, and, and frankly alluded to by Paul in places like 2 Thessalonians and elsewhere. So this is a very famous passage. Now, in literary, literarily speaking, in the book, it's located in a very interesting place. You may remember that the first chapter is in Hebrew, and then chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, and then chapter 8 to the end of the book is in Hebrew again. So if you take the Aramaic section of the book, this is the last part of the Aramaic section. The first part of the Aramaic section was chapter 2. So that's very interesting, because in chapter 2, you have the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and in chapter 7, you have the dream of Daniel, about basically the same thing, but viewed very differently. So like bookends. That has a fancy name, but they're like bookends, you know? 
uh, the, uh, the beginning of the Aramaic section and the end of the Aramaic section. And also, uh, the uh, seventh chapter also highlights the fact, and I think we mentioned this the last time we were in Daniel a few weeks ago, that the first six chapters point out ultimately in the, very, in the life of Daniel and in the life of his friends living in Babylon, the invisible yet real dominion of God. The invisible but real dominion of God. I mean, they were living in Babylon. They were kings ruling over them. Uh, uh, yet, God was still the victor in those situations. Okay. Now we see here in chapter 7, in a cosmic kind of way, one might say, that God has dominion, uh, rulership, uh, and, and we'll see that here. So the seventh chapter relates to everything before it, but the seventh chapter also relates to everything after it, because as we will see in chapter eight, uh, chapter eight is like a uh, microscope, or is it microscope? Yeah, microscope, uh, uh, looking at two of these four kingdoms and what, and what they mean in, in history and how they serve as a type or picture of the end of time, as we know it anyway. Uh, and then in chapter 9, you have Daniel's great prayer of repentance, which is one of the great passages in the Word of God, really. And then uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel, where Daniel is uh, praying that he might know when they're going to return, because it looks like 70 years are over. But then uh, Gabriel comes and gives him this tremendous, again, cosmic view of, of what's going to happen. And then in chapter 10, you basically have an introduction to chapter 11, which is a very long chapter with uh, very specific historical events uh, that Daniel received prophetically, but that takes place after his time. But in world history, it's already uh, taken place. Uh, but again, pointing again to the end of the, the time of the end. And then in chapter 12, ultimately resurrection and, and so on. So chapter 7 is like a hinge uh, in the book of Daniel and therefore very important for us uh, to uh, understand. So it says at the beginning of the chapter, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, uh, Daniel saw a dream and vision in his mind as he lay in his, on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So the first year of Belshazzar, if you go back to chapter 5, you read about Belshazzar, right? Belshazzar the king held a great feast, right? And if you remember from chapter 5, we know that Belshazzar is the end of the line when it comes to uh, the Babylonian Empire. So when Daniel has this vision, it's not quite the end of the Babylonian period, but it's almost the end. It's within a few years of the end of the Babylonian period. Okay, So it's very important that Daniel is getting this big picture of, uh, of world history uh, and the ultimate victory of, uh, of God. All right, so I think it's interesting uh, also that it says, he wrote his dream down and related the following summary of it. So that's interesting. There might have been other parts to this dream. That, uh, that only Daniel uh, may be aware of. So I think that when he says related the following summary of it, 
that we need to understand it as a summary as well, you know, uh, and recognize the big sweep of history that is being spoken of, of uh, here. So then it says, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, it's very interesting. Stirring up is, is not, uh, not powerful enough. Maybe some of you have in an English translation, churning. It's like the sea was churning. You know, that's what's happening. And, and it's the four winds of heaven representing all of, you know, four speaks of like a totality, the four corners of the earth and so on and so forth. The, the heavenlies, one might say, is churning the great sea. It tells us that it's ultimately coming from God. Whatever is, whatever is being spoken here is ultimately coming from God. God uh, is not on the sidelines of world history. That is hard for us to get because some things just don't add up when it comes to world history. Not just now. I mean, if God is sovereign, then large, large portions of world history don't add up. But you see, oh, wait a minute. We're not the creator. We're the created. Oh, oh. we're not the potter. We're the clay. That means we will not understand all of world history and why, the big why questions. We will not understand because we are the created ones. See? Uh, God is the uh, a creator. See? And so we see here that he is the one who churns the waters uh, of, uh, of the great sea. Now it says, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, some might say, oh, it's like the Mediterranean Sea. Like they're kind of like sea monsters, you know, coming up on the beaches of Tel Aviv or something, right? Uh, and you could say, well, you know, the Philistines came across the water, uh, you know, one might say out of the sea. But uh, if you have a good concordance, you can see that like in Isaiah, it refers to the people of the coastlands. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, a bee, in chapter 13, a beast comes out of the sea. Oftentimes, in the scriptures, the nations, the, the, the Gentile nations, are said to be coming from the sea, out of the sea, or from the war, at the coastlands. Okay? And so probably, these, this is not speaking about literally the Mediterranean Sea, uh, but these are nations. Now, maybe when Daniel was dreaming it, he saw a, the great sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe. I don't know. It, it, the text doesn't tell us. But we do see that these great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, in verse 4, it says, The first one was like a lion and had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given uh, uh, to it. Okay? And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, 
which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Uh, and while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, little, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Okay, so he sees these four beasts. Okay, so the first one, uh, like an eye, uh, you know, a lion with wings of an eagle, uh, and some would say it's somewhat of a reminder, a little bit of like a uh, echo of Nebuchadnezzar when he was in the fourth chapter when he became, you know, like a beast. Okay, you see some similar terminology, uh, perhaps uh, referring to uh, Babylon. Now the second beast, resembling a bear, there's two sides to it. Many would say this resembles the Medo-Persian, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay. Then it says, after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, very fast, which had on its back four wings of a bird, everything speaking of quickness here. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This is the only one where it says dominion was given to it. And it is certainly a reminder uh, uh, of a Alexander the Great and the, the next great world empire, the Greek Empire, where in a 10-year period, Alexander basically conquered the, uh, much of the known world. Uh, and upon his uh, uh, death, untimely death, four heads, four world leaders came, uh, several of whom play a great role that we see in actually in chapter 8. Okay? In chapter 8, we will see uh, that much is made of this, uh, this Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and Greek, and Greek Empire. Okay? Uh, and, so we, we, and Dominion, and certainly uh, Alexander, more than uh, any leader of any of these empires, uh, certainly uh, is known for, that, uh, for his dominion, dominion. And then, of course, the last one, after this I kept looking, and we see that the fourth one is different from all the other ones altogether. It's different from all of the other ones altogether. In its uh, uh, ferociousness, right? Dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, large iron teeth, this fourth kingdom, right? It devoured, crushed, trampled the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other ones. And you know what? It tells us how it's different. It had ten horns. The other ones didn't have horns. This one has ten horns. Horns refer to great power, tremendous power, okay? And then it's interesting that you see, and this is so ironic and such a great, in a way, uh, I don't know, metaphor or play on words. The little horn, there's a little horn that speaks great words. But you see, it's a little horn. Horns speak of great power. But what we see here is there's this little horn that speaks great powerful things. But ultimately, in reality, does not have great power. 
the only power given to it or any of it comes from the four winds of heaven. And so, very importantly, that is what is being brought out here. Muttering great boasts. That is a, it's very important to understand this. The horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. See? Okay. So we see here that one certainly resembles the, uh, the uh, Roman Empire. Now, when you compare this dream of the godly man Daniel to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, we might say, well, they're the same, just using different symbols. Well, those symbols are like really important <laughs> because that's what we're supposed to get. The symbolism uh, is very important to us, okay? In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember what it was? It was, it was precious metals, precious metals. Remember, and Nebuchadnezzar figured out, I am the head of gold, right? Yep. And also, it's, an, it's very general. Just four precious metals, and then there's a stone that comes and destroys it, and the kingdom of God, uh, and the kingdom of God uh, arrives. In the seventh chapter, we have much more detail, uh, as we'll see, especially about this, uh, the kingdom of God. But one of the profound differences is you have beasts with you know, combinations of, uh, of animals, lions with wings and bears chewing on these bones and uh, it's a grotesque pictures. So from the, from the eyes of the pagan king, it's beautiful and it's good and it's right, these world empires. It's great. But from in the eyes of the man of God, it is barbaric. It is grotesque. They're like monsters, these four kingdoms. And so one of the things that we learn here is that from the point, you know, we all have a different worldview in a way. And certainly the difference between the worldview of people that uh, live under the sun and whose entire worldview is under the sun in this world based on observation, logic, and so on, that worldview is very different than a worldview that comes from God. In this world, certainly people who uh, embrace the culture, embrace what this world has to offer, and sees it as like the end game, this world is what we have, sees it as, generally speaking, things are pretty good in getting, and, and in certain respects, even getting better. Whereas from the eyes of a person who embraces the God of Israel, it's grotesque and ugly. And certainly we are living in a day when that becomes quite clear and uh, uh, quite true. Uh, uh, for us. You know, we are very, we're spoiled in, uh, in the United States, very spoiled, you know, as Messiah followers. For most of uh, history, American history, and even in our own day, generally speaking, the culture inside of the community of faith, right or wrong, for all warts and all, mirrored in a way the culture outside. 
right? And we've all heard of it, the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? That there's basically like the Ten Commandments and some things are basically good and some things are basically bad. And let's face it, for many, um, many communities of faith, many churches and synagogues, for example, that uh, the, the difference between the uh, inside, of the, uh, inside of that community and outside is hard to see, except for maybe Bible doctrine. But in terms of actual practice, it's kind of like a fraternal order, you know? In other words, uh, we're all of, uh, you know, under uh, one belief system, but the way we function, this is the way it has been. The way we function is basically there's good and there's bad, and we recognize what the good is and the bad is, and, and you know, basically, uh, in general, conventional wisdom is that the good is the same good and the bad is the same bad. But over the course of a number of years, we have seen that the moorings of the culture have moved away, like a boat leaving the dock. And what's happening is, is that the community of faith, believers in Messiah, the body of Messiah, those who identify with Yeshua, are becoming more and more distinct from the culture. More and more distinct. Okay, In other words, really different. Right? When we look at what is considered conventional wisdom now and the direction that things are heading, it becomes quite clear that as Messiah followers, believers in the God of Israel, that our values are becoming quite distinct from the culture around us. Now, we are all wringing our hands and we're saying, oh no, like the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Well, you know, the scriptures have said this very thing. And may I comfort us a bit by saying that when the words of the Bible were written, from the beginning to the end, the culture of the people of God has always been distinct from this world. And those who have embraced the God of Israel, we're talking about, you know, uh, just within Judaism or uh, the, uh, the coming of the Messiah and embracing the Messiah, believers in Messiah have always been in the, in the minority. Believers in the God of Israel have always been in the minority. There's a passage in the Torah that depicts this. It's one of my favorite passages to turn to for something like this. It's in Leviticus chapter 18. And this is what the Lord warns the Jewish people as they're about to enter the land. He says here in Leviticus chapter 18, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. Well, you know, there's not a lot of room here for the culture, uh, uh, the world culture of the time. Because if I was one of those Israelites, I'd be thinking, wait, 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 wait a minute. If I don't live like I lived in Egypt, or the way people lived in Egypt, and I'm not supposed to live like you're gonna, like you're living in Canaan, you know, how are we supposed to live? We, we're not like getting in some kind of rocket ship and going to another planet. We live distinctly. We live differently. And as I have said before, I'll say it again, 
what is becoming quite clear is that this is the alternative lifestyle. This is the alternative. And we need to recognize that and embrace it and recognize it as a fantastic opportunity to testify of the reality of God and not be wringing our hands, oh no, the sky's falling, what's going to happen to America? You know, calm down, relax. Don't, don't read everything, don't believe everything you read on Facebook, okay? You know, uh, that uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we're called to live in the, margins, in the margins and speak into the culture. The eyes that can see with faith see the grotesque nature of it all. And we're called to speak into it. You know, you know I, like anybody else, care about the country that I live in. And I want, you know, there to be blessing and repentance and godliness, no doubt. But this isn't the promised land. No matter who says what, it's not the promised land. We are living in, in, from a Jewish point of view, we're living in the diaspora. We live in the uttermost part of the earth. And so we need to recognize that. And God has made us salt and light. And so we need to be salt and light. And not pray that we don't have to be salt and light. You see? And, uh, and so when Daniel has this vision, it becomes quite clear. And the way it's written in the book, the beginning of the Aramaic section is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The end of the Aramaic section is Daniel's dream. And so we see it speaks of world empires, but they're viewed in entirely different ways. I'm afraid that some of us like to view the empires the way Nebuchadnezzar did. Great, marvelous, power, you know, politics, prominence. No, they're grotesque. They are world empires. They actually manifest the sin nature. They're like manif huge manifestations of the sin nature, right? If you go back to the Garden of Eden, God allowed sin. God allowed sin, right? And it was the beginning. We know from the scriptures that because of the sin of the man and the woman, of Adam and Eve, there is sin in this world. Well, the, the world leaders and empires of this world manifest in huge ways the deeds of the flesh. You can read it. I won't turn to it right now, but read it in Galatians chapter 5. The, the systems of this world manifest the deeds of, uh, of, the, uh, of the flesh. Now, uh, so Daniel receives this, and, and, but that's not all, right? That's not all. Now he's going to receive some other information because he's not done dreaming, right? Now he says in uh, verse 9 of chapter 7, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. 
the court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away from, was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, so he sees these four grotesque kingdoms, but then he sees something else. He sees thrones set up, and then the one from everlasting, the ancient of days, the one from everlasting, took his seat. And we see this picture of glory and holiness that comes from a variety of other texts in the Bible that we could find, okay? And which, when we have our class, we might uh, look at some of them. Uh, but glory and holiness, all right? Now, when you read verses 9 and 10, you may be thinking, this sounds a little bit like the book of Revelation, right? Because we do read uh, about thrones being set up, and we do see uh, 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 myriads worshiping and, and, and so on and so forth. And so there are similarities in Daniel 7 to different parts of the book of Revelation. Okay? Uh, and so what you have in Revelation is a little bit more... Uh, it's... Um, a fuller description, we'll just call it for that for our purposes right now, a fuller description. But the point is, is we see that you have these grotesque kingdoms, the fourth being the worst of all, and then we see that breaking in is God sitting on his throne, right? Uh, and we see that the dominion is taken away from those empires, but the empires are not destroyed, but dominion is taken away from them, and they are not destroyed, okay? But it's not yet the end. We see now something else. Now, it could have ended right there, you know, that you have uh, the Ancient of Days comes and sits on his throne, uh, and uh, the world empires, the dominion is taken away, and there you go, the kingdom of, of God. But more is given to us. Now, you'll notice he says in verse 13, I kept looking. Just like in verse 9, I kept looking. Now in verse 13, I kept looking. There's something very uh, relational about verses 9 to 12, and then 13 and 14. Very important. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, so we see you have an ancient of days, and then you have one like a son of man. And it seems like one is sitting on a throne, the other one's sitting on a throne. Who has the dominion? Who's the sovereign one? Is it the, son, is it the one like, coming like a son of man? Is it the ancient of days? What's going on here? 
When you look at it in the book of Revelation, it's also very interesting. There is a little bit of ambiguity because you have the lamb sitting on the throne. Well, how come it's not a lion sitting on the throne? But it's the lamb sitting on the throne, and that's a whole interesting story uh, in and of itself. Now, so we might say, so how is this interpreted in the Jewish world? In many ways, okay? Uh, In many ways. It is a, a prevalent view, or has been a prevalent view, that it's the Messiah. That it's the Messiah. That's what Rashi taught. That's what Rabbi Akiva taught. These are all real famous heavyweights of uh, uh, biblical and Jewish biblical interpretation throughout the centuries. That it's the Messiah. It's the son of David. In fact, right in the Talmud, it says it's the son of David. But then the question gets asked, well, how could it be the son of David? Because he's like coming in the clouds. And so, you know, I, we've mentioned probably in a varieties of uh, contexts uh, the Jewish Gospels by Daniel Boyarin. And he quotes these different uh, texts, Jewish texts written in the late Second Temple period that try to figure this out. But what's fascinating is, is that the Gospels are written in the late Second Temple period, and Yeshua gives clarity to it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. When you read here in uh, Daniel chapter 7, you have now, you have the, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne, And then you have uh, one coming like the Son of Man, okay? So in a passage like um, Matthew chapter 22, all right, uh, you have in verse 41, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Yeshua asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Messiah? whose Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit Call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him with a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because Yeshua, in several different places, whether he's talking about Psalm 110 as a messianic prophecy of himself, or Psalm 2, certainly what we read in the book of Acts in the second chapter, refers to there is this one who's on the throne, and then there's the son of David, who also is called Lord. How can this be? You see it in the second psalm, you see it in Psalm 110, and Yeshua seems to be this one who is identified in one sense with the one sitting on the throne as the one sitting on the throne and then also is distinct from the one sitting on the throne, right? Uh, Then also, of course, in Matthew chapter 24, when Yeshua is talking about the signs of the end and so on, he says here uh, in verse 36 of Matthew 24, but of that day, and that is the consummation, you know, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the... Oh, wait. Oh, Um, I want to start there. Uh, Let me go back. Uh, No. Let's go to verse 29. Let's go to verse 29. We'll just read a few verses here. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will will not give its light. 
and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Okay, And he will send forth his angels with great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So it's very interesting. Yeshua identifies himself as the Son of Man in his life, in his first coming. He's the Son of Man, okay? In, uh, and he identifies himself as the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, all right? Now, when it says like the Son of Man, that's very important. So the question is, this is a unique figure who's not just a man like when Ezekiel uses the phrase Son of Man, but one like a Son of Man. One who is like a Son of Man, yet he's coming in the clouds, like God would come in the clouds. A unique figure. This is how Yeshua understood his self-identity. He is both the Son of David, as we read in chapter 22, and the Son of Man, as we read uh, as we read in chapter 24 of Matthew, speaking of himself as the king and as the eschatological, uh, the eschatological king identified with Hashem, identified with God. And so here we see uh, uh, that uh, while there are these grotesque world kingdoms, in comes the Son of Man. In comes the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Now, it is no coincidence that this fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire and in breaks this kingdom. There's no coincidence there, okay? Uh, in breaks, uh, you know, uh, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne and, uh, and we see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. So we know that we read in a variety of texts, the day will come, but now is, right? This inbreaking of the, uh, uh, the kingdom, the kingdom that began with uh, King David, right? But the, yes, the, the end times version of it. And when Yeshua came, and I've said this before, that when Yeshua came, the Messiah came, okay? And we are living in the end times. The Messiah will appear, appear twice in this coming. He appeared already as a suffering servant, and he will appear again as the victorious king. But it is important for us to understand that he did indeed come. When we say the first coming and the second coming, that is oftentimes misunderstood as he came left and will someday come again. He came and he reigns invisibly, okay? But the day will come when he will visibly return and sit on a throne in Eretz Israel in Jerusalem, you know, and, uh, and as we read about uh, the Jewish people on the four corners of the earth will return to Eretz Israel and, and so on uh, and so forth. And so on two levels... Uh, we understand that there is great victory here. First, in the coming of Yeshua into this world. That no matter what this world dishes out, our king lives. The dominion of God is forever. 
not based on elections or world history or anything else. And so no matter what is taking place among the kingdoms and empires of this world, we are those who live with the king as the son of man coming in the clouds. Yet, we know Yeshua said it himself. As he, think about it, when he said the words in Matthew 24, he understood himself to be the son of man. He knew who he was and he knew what his purpose was and he said it. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, right? But he also knew that there was a future day when he would appear again. And at that time, would come and judge, uh, judge the world uh, and inaugurate this, uh, this, uh, the, the way the world is supposed to be, this you know, new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and so we, on, on this date, on this 4th of July, when we lament so much going on in the culture, may we rejoice and know that our king lives and that the day will come. Not only does he live and that those who trust in him uh, live under his reign and he never leaves us or forsakes us and helps us to maneuver through this world and sometimes even breaks in and changes the history, but that, but that we have this assurance of knowing that no matter what this world dishes out, God has a plan for this world that will not be thwarted. And we are a part of that. Even if we are on the margins, and even if in our own lifetime we don't see its manifestation. But we continue to be light and salt, and that is indeed what he told us to be. In fact, we'll continue with this next week, but I just wanted to read in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, it says in verse 6, not just verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, okay? Only he who now restrains will do so until he, was ta- until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring in it to an end the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and all power and signs and false witnesses and with all deceptions of wickedness and so on and so forth. But the point is is that when he, he says it's already at work. So see, we're living in this day when lawlessness reigns, you see? And, and so we should not be surprised at that. We're just spoiled because of we live in the United States. But travel to other parts of the world, and you will hear stories of, from other centuries and other decades of tremendous persecution of people who embrace the Messiah. This is not new, you see. This is the world in which we live. So let us, with eyes of faith, be encouraged and say what an opportunity we have to testify of the reality of God, of this alternative way of life. And so let us not be, uh, well, deceived, taken in. Let us not be infiltrated by this, these aspects of the culture, let us stand guard, stand firm, yet at the same time be porous because we want people to come. But let us stand firm in our values and our beliefs and may we be light and salt 
in the way that we interact with each other uh, and uh, the world. And um, may, we, um, uh, may we embrace this uh, great truth. You know, I'm just going to read a couple more sentences and we'll be done. Says, he says, As for me, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this, and he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Isn't that great news? And so, the saints of the highest, the holy ones, will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages uh, to come. So let us focus our own future on the coming of the Son of Man and His dominion. And then let us be empowered to speak into these grotesque empires of this world. What a calling, what a great calling we have. What a time to live as Messiah followers. Uh, to really sp- to speak into this culture in such a way that that people say, wow, what is it that you have? I want to be a part of that. That is quite a calling. And sometimes it doesn't quite work out when people say, wow, how can I be a part of that? Sometimes the culture is so far removed from its mo- original moorings that it says, whoa, what is that? Right? And isn't that exactly, isn't that why Yeshua died? Isn't that why, uh, going all the way back to the time of the prophets, why the prophets were killed and the apostles and, uh, and many martyrs in the name of Yeshua? They didn't make a mistake. They didn't use wrong terminology and so they offended people and then got killed for it. No, it was the message. It was Yeshua that was repulsive to these grotesque kingdoms, isn't it interesting? To, to, to the grotesque kingdoms, the kingdom of God is grotesque and repulsive. To those of us who see the glory and the beauty of God, we understand the reality of this world. And so, let us pray and press on as we move forward as a congregation uh, and as a people, making a difference in this world. Lord uh, God, we do uh, uh, thank you, God, that you've given us eyes to see. Thank you, Lord, that you've helped us to understand, understand this world. And may we not live in fear. May we not be escapists, so to speak. But may we say now is the time for us to rise up. Now is the time for us to testify of the reality of Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, and that the son of David, the, the king of Israel, has indeed come. And may we be able to share that message with our people that indeed our king has come. May we embrace him. May we be delivered from this domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Thank you, Lord, that we indeed have been delivered. May we live that way. And may we look forward to the day when you appear again, Lord. And we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.